Welcome to the Semper Reformato podcast, spreading the word and contending for the faith. Isaiah 45, please. Isaiah 45 and verse 20. Assemble yourselves together. And come, draw near together, ye that are escaped of the nations. They have no knowledge that set up the wood of their graven image, and pray unto a God that cannot save. Tell ye, and bring them near. Yea, let them take counsel together. Who hath declared this from ancient time? Who hath told it from that time? Have not I the Lord? And there is no God else beside me, a just God and a Savior. There is none beside me. Look unto me, and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is none else. I have sworn by myself. The word is gone out of my mouth in righteousness, and shall not return. That unto me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear. Surely shall one say, In the Lord have I righteousness and strength. Even to him shall men come, and all that are incensed against him shall be ashamed. In the Lord shall all the seed of Israel be justified and shall glory. And just keep your bookmark in that passage from Isaiah. And turn with me, please, to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 11. Ephesians 3 and 11. According to the eternal purpose, which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of him, Wherefore I desire that ye faint not at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his Spirit, in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Amen. I want to draw your attention this evening to verse 14 in particular, where Paul says, For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. Paul has been giving these Ephesians a wonderful promise. We looked at it last week. 
It's found in verse 12. In whom we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of him. In Christ they have a great privilege. A privilege actually that had been denied even to the Lord's covenant people of the Old Testament. The privilege of being allowed to enter directly into the presence of God, the one who is thrice holy, the God who dwells in unapproachable light. And they can only do that because they are, in status, already considered to be cleansed of their sins by the shed blood of Christ. They are washed in the blood of the Lamb and so made pure before God. And they can come into the presence of God in prayer, as we have been just a moment ago, with great confidence. And they know that when they come, they will be heard and they will be answered. They know that whatever the outcome, whatever life brings, they will always find grace to help in times of need. Because they are fully aware and have been made aware by the Apostle that they are part of God's plan. We learned that uh, in verse 11, that everything is according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Our victory in Christ is therefore already assured. Therefore they mustn't lose heart, sure they shouldn't. Verse 13 in whom we have boldness, verse 12, verse 13, wherefore I desire that ye faint not at my tribulations for you, which is for your glory. They mustn't lose heart, even though they've heard the news that Paul is in prison. Even though they know that that imprisonment will very likely end in his death as a martyr. For they've already been assured that God is working all things according to his plan and purpose. And Paul tells us elsewhere that all things work together for good to those who love the Lord and who are the called according to his purpose. God is working his purpose out. I think that's something we need to remember too. Think about these Christians in Ephesus, new believers. Most of them were probably slaves people of low rank with absolutely no control over their day-to-day lives. They were being governed heavily. They were being watched over. They had to work when they were told to work and stop when they were told to stop. They lived in imminent danger of death. The authorities could pick them up at any time. They were slaves. They were of no value to anyone, most of these people. They could be imprisoned, they could be enslaved. For the profession of Christianity, they could be taken to Rome. They could be brought into the arena, they could be fed to wild beasts. They could be tied to a stake and they could be burned. They could be tortured. They could be sold to a master who didn't appreciate them and would be cruel to them. They would be raising their family, and their family could be taken from them and enslaved. They lived in dreadful times. And yet there they are, being told by Paul and being assured 
that all things are working together in accordance with God's plan and purpose. I think that's something we need to hear today. We live in a dreadful world. We know we live in a dreadful world. We know that the authorities that rule over us have not got our good in mind. They don't want to look upon us beneficently. They don't want to do what is good for us. They want to subject us and they want to enslave us. They want to bring us into conformity with the values of this world. They teach these things to our children in their schools. They learn how to be sexualized as children from a very early age with the complicity of the school authorities. Across the world, they're being shown pornography from all sorts of ages. They're being taught that abortion is a legitimate way of contraception, and so they should indulge in all forms of immorality and simply allow the babies that will result from that to be removed from them to be murdered. That's the kind of world we live in. A world where a young girl of 19 was sentenced to death. I actually thought the death penalty was over in this country. And yet a young girl of a Christian family, sentenced to death by a judge, sentenced to be allowed to die rather than to be allowed to live and to seek extra treatment, simply because they deemed that she was unable, unable to understand by virtue of her illness the instructions and the, the, and the definitions and the prognosis that her doctors were giving her. And so she should be allowed to die. Whenever two eminent psychologists had testified that she was quite capable of understanding, that in itself should scare us. What happens then with a patient who develops dementia? can't understand the doctor's prognosis. Should we simply put them to death? Isn't that what lies ahead? We live in a dreadful world. So did the Ephesians. We need to look at verse 13. And we need to mark it in our Bibles. And we need to learn that we are to faint not when we see the tribulations of others. Because God is in control of this world. Even though in these last days, the dark authorities that are rebelling against God in this world, even though they are rising up in one last awful push before the coming of the Lord, we are to remember that we have boldness and confidence to access God and that everything will work according to the eternal purpose which he hath purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Even if the Roman soldiers come to your house tomorrow and take your wife and children and sell them into slavery and they take you to Rome and they feed you to a lion, rejoice! Because everything is being done in accordance with God's plan and purpose. Wherefore, says Paul, I'm in prison. What does it matter? 
not complaining about that. I'm not going to pray that the Lord would release me from my imprisonment. I'm not going to pray that the Lord would set me free. I'm not going to pray that Caesar be struck down or that the prison officers be, 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 be killed. I'm not going to pray for that. I'm going to bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm going to pray for you, Ephesians, that God would grant you confidence and strength, inner strength, in the inner man, strengthened by the Spirit, so that whatever tribulations may befall you in the days that lie ahead, that you would trust in the Lord with complete confidence, knowing that ultimately we are on the winning side. So in verse 14, Paul begins the verse with, For this cause. It's a repetition of verse 1, you see. Remember that Paul has had this digression. Led by the Holy Spirit, he has digressed. He had meant to start by saying, for this cause, I pray for you, because that's what he's going to do now. But he has got distracted by what has happened to him personally and how he was called, how he was called into the ministry, how he was given this special revelation from God, that God was bringing all things together, that he has a plan but from before the foundation of the world to bring everything together in Christ, and now he's going to pray for the Ephesians. He's back on track. And the first thing that we see is that he drops to his knees, at least metaphorically speaking. Let's think about that for a moment. Paul is on his knees, and he's going to pray a most wonderful prayer. In fact, Martin Lloyd-Jones tells us that this little passage that we read from verse 14, I suppose, down to verse 19, is one of the most sublime portions of all of Paul's writings, full of great lofty prose, lift our hearts, it's a wonderful prayer. Is he on his knees to pray? And if he is, is this an imperative? Is this something we should do? Is this something we should be required to do when we pray? I know plenty who do. I know plenty of times when I've been at prayer meetings, ministerial prayer meetings, and we've been having a time of prayer and we've sat down, and one venerable old pastor, much respected, has got off his seat and turned round and kneeled down in prayer. And I've been amazed, once he does it, how many others will do it as well. I remember, not me of course, but I remember being over in England uh, in the 90s at a publishing conference and they had asked for a local pastor to come in and do the devotions before the conference began. And the pastor came in, I don't know who he was, I was sitting beside a friend of mine from Scotland, a man from a gospel hall background, and we were sitting together, and this was in the south of England, and the man came in, and he, he began by saying, 
I feel that the Lord would have us all lie on the floor. Down they all went. Except me. I was stuck to my seat. And my friend beside me from Scotland never budged. And of course, if you go to an Anglican service or a Catholic service, you'll maybe find a little padded seat cushion on the back of the seat in front of you, in the back of the pew, so that when the vicar or the priest or the rector invites you to pray, you can kneel down in comfort. Oh, I am sure Paul carried one of those about with him. Can you imagine it? I wonder if those that insist that we should kneel in prayer actually use this verse as a proof text. And I'm thinking, surely what matters is the thoughts and intents of our hearts. In fact, the Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter 6 actually chastises people who love to be seen for their outward righteousness in prayer. In Matthew chapter 6, part of the Sermon on the Mount, verse 5, he says, when thou prayest, Thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward, but thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet, and when thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy Father, which is in secret, and thy Father, which seeth in secret, shall reward thee openly. We are most certainly not to make an exhibition of ourselves in prayer. We're not to use prayer to draw attention to our supposed godliness or our righteousness. I even heard a story once about C.H. Spurgeon. And of course, you have to be careful with Spurgeon stories. There's so many of them. But apparently a man had been trying to impress him with his righteousness. But a great Christian he was. What a great prayer warrior. And he told Spurgeon that he was on his knees for several hours every day. I, I, I know a, a pastor who has told me that on a number of occasions. He has told me with great um, delight in his voice, I suppose, uh, of getting up at five in the morning and spending his five-hour prayer time Spurgeon's alleged reply to that man was, well, perhaps if your position was a little more orthodox, then your doctrine would be also. In fact, kneeling in prayer would not have even been the usual posture for a Jewish man. Paul was initially a Jew, Christian Jew. His posture in prayer would have been standing, not sitting. He would have stood and he would have stretched out his hands with his palms facing upwards. So why was Paul kneeling as he began this prayer? And I'm going to suggest to you that this is not the posture for prayer at all. I'm going to suggest to you that Paul's kneeling has nothing to do with what he's going to pray for the Ephesians. It has everything to do with something that he has just said. For he begins, for this cause. It links us to what has gone before. It's for this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul has been thinking about some very deep and very wonderful Christian truths. 
He's been thinking about the gathering of the Gentiles into the covenant people of God. What a wonderful truth that is. It's happening right before Paul's very eyes. And he, the very least of the apostles, the man who was the lowest of all the saints, the man who's the chief of sinners, he's been chosen by God to be instrumental in bringing this wonderful episode, this wonderful plan about No doubt Paul would have been very familiar with the book of Isaiah. He would have known that passage that we read a little bit earlier on. The prophet who who had prophesied in part about the gathering in of all nations. And Paul would have been able to recite that passage from his heart. And perhaps he had in mind these very words, Isaiah 45 and 23, where it says, I have sworn by myself. The word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return. That unto me, unto God, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear. Take a vow, take an oath. And Paul knew that to bow the knee before God is an act of surrender. An acknowledgement of the Lordship of Christ. He would have known that when Isaiah made that prophecy, he did it in the context of the conversion of the nations. Verse 21, tell ye and bring them near, bring the nations near. It's a plea for evangelism. Let them take counsel together who hath declared this from an ancient time and hath told it from that time. Hath not I the Lord? There is no God beside me, not the gods of the nations. He is a just God. He is a saviour. Look on to me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, he says. And that's what's happening in Paul's day. Is there any wonder he bows the knee? Reverence and humility. That he's been called to be the chosen instrument for this to happen. And of course, he's looking at his own conversion and call as he has been in verse 1 down to verse 12 or 13. And he's been relating how God has chosen him, a sinner, and called him and revealed this great mystery, this truth to him, the hidden purposes of God revealed to a sinful man and how he had expressed his absolute amazement that God would do. So look at verse 8. Unto me who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. So what's happening here? Paul has been thinking about two great truths, two great facts, God's eternal plan and his part in that plan. And he falls to his knees in wonder. And he acknowledges the greatness of God. And I think tonight, friends, there is every reason why we too should adopt that same attitude. If not in posture, at least in attitude. We should do so because of the objective work of God in Christ. We should do so because God in his great plan 
has sent his Son for us. Because God, who created us and sustains us, loved us so much that he gave us his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. We think of what he has done for us. For this cause, because of the objective work of God for sinners, I bow my knees. And because of the subjective work of God within me, because of what God has done in me, and I'm speaking as the representative of each one of you here, because what God has done in us as individuals, because of my personal salvation, because God has applied the saving work of Christ to my sinful life and brought me in regeneration from death to life, and because God has given me his blessed Holy Spirit to indwell me because of the subjective work of God applying salvation to me for this cause, my response is to bow the knee in humility before God. There's two reasons. We bow the knee because of what God has done. We bow the knee because what God has done for us as sinners. And for this cause, I bow the knee because of the future work of God in the exaltation of Christ. Because today, willingly, my knee will bow. My tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Back in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah concludes that passage with an eschatological reference. He says in verse 25, In the Lord shall all the seed of Israel be justified and shall glory. And in verse 24, he tells us why. That even to him shall men come, and all that are incensed against him shall be ashamed. Because, you see, there will be a day when every knee will bow before Christ. Those who will be sharing his glory and those who are, as Isaiah says, incensed against him. And you can see that in this present world. Men and women who are incensed against Christ. And on that great day, they will bow the knee. Paul takes up this theme again in Philippians, where he talks about the Lord Jesus. He says, wherefore God hath also highly exalted him, and give it him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things which are under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Three good reasons why I bow the knee, why you bow the knee. Because of what God has done in Christ. Because of what God has done in applying that work to my life. Because if I don't bow the knee willingly to Christ now, then I will do so in eternity. And it will not 
be a happy experience in that case. And the question we must leave this evening is have you come to Christ in humility and on bended knee trusted him for your salvation? It is for this cause that I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. When I was a teenager and I knew no better, I sang, played instruments with a group of other Christian young people around coffee bars and things. We used to sing a wee song. It was based on the birth of Christ and talked about the wise men coming and bringing gifts. And the chorus of the song says, you can come and see the king, but the door is low. You must bow the knee and pray before you go. You can come and see the king and the gift impart, but your gift won't mean a thing lest you give your heart. Will you bow the knee? Or will you wait till it's too late? And you stand before God in judgment. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, please help to make it better known by opening the podcast app on your phone or mobile device. Then, search for The Semper Reformata Podcast. Subscribe and give it a 5-star rating. See you next time.